0: Citizens of God's kingdom by the life and death of Jesus. Our citizenship was purchased for us in this way. And Jesus is teaching us to be what we have become. Again, we become citizens of God's kingdom by the life and death of Jesus. And Jesus is teaching us to be what we have become. I've divided this passage up very simply according to the verse. The first section is those who hunger and thirst, verse 6. The second section is the merciful, verse 7. And the third section is the pure in heart, verse 8. So those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, and the pure in heart. So let's first look at those who hunger and thirst, verse 6. Jesus says in this verse, he gives the fourth beatitude. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now Jesus And at least Matthew, as he's compiled this gospel, as he's put these accounts together of what Jesus has done and what he has said, he is cognizant of the fact that he, in chapter 5, is talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness' sake, when in chapter 4, he described Jesus as hungering in the desert, in the wilderness, as he fasted for 40 days. And so in a larger context, Jesus is speaking of this hunger and thirst. And he's speaking out of his own experience. He was willing to give up food for 40 days because he would rather hunger and thirst for righteousness than for food now we all know what it's like to be hungry and thirsty don't we not not 40 days worth of hunger but we understand it nonetheless and for those of us who love food and I am one of them it's very easy (laughs) to come to the point where you love food you look forward to your next meal with zeal (laughs) and eagerness we're hardly able to think of anything else until we get that food in our mouth and we are satisfied in our bellies. But when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, He's saying that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, righteousness is just as crucial as food. And not only is it crucial, He's saying you should desire it. Those of you who love food and look forward to your next meal, those of you who are gourmet cooks, you should desire the spiritual food, as much as you desire physical food. This is what Jesus is saying here. The, per- the person who has been purchased by Jesus' blood would rather go without food than without righteousness. Now, the word translated righteousness here is used seven times in Matthew's Gospel, four times alone in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters five to seven. And we'll look at just a few of these this morning we've already encountered this word back in chapter 3, verse 15. When Jesus said to John regarding his baptism, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then getting into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 20, In the context of saying that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, in chapter six, verse one, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And again, in chapter 6, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, There are several other uses of this word in Matthew's Gospel, but I think we've gotten a picture here of how Jesus uses this word. And in these Scripture quotations, it is clear that Jesus is speaking of righteousness as the perfect keeping of the law. He is saying that the law must be kept perfectly. He's telling His disciples, He's telling these crowds, you must keep the law. Not one jot, not one tittle will go away. I did not come to abolish this law. I came to fulfill it. So where does this leave us? We see those who hunger and thirst are poor in spirit. Those who hunger and thirst are meek. Those who hunger and thirst are humble enough to know that they have no righteousness in and of themselves. They know that their righteous deeds are as filthy garments. As the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Those who are poor in spirit understand that there is an inconsistency between what they are required to do according to God's word and what they actually do. And those of you whom the Lord has called... And justified, and is sanctifying even now, you know what this means. You understand what the Lord has called you to do, and you understand your inability to fulfill it. The citizen of the kingdom will know that he or she has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. But the person who is the citizen of the kingdom of God will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will do this. You will hunger and thirst for righteousness because you know that righteousness has a name. That righteousness is not simply a set of laws or rules or obligations that you must keep. Righteousness is a person. Now hear these words from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. The Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. This is his name, the Lord our righteousness. Well, who is the Lord speaking of here through the prophet Jeremiah? Who is he talking about? This is the branch of David. We've already covered this in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We looked at this just before Christmas. Who is Jeremiah speaking of here? He's speaking of none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord, our righteousness. When we hunger, for, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we hunger and thirst for Him, for no other. We don't hunger for a set of rules. We hunger for Christ because we know that we cannot keep the law in the way that the the law demands. Well, Jesus pronounces a blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it is, again, a future blessing. We know that the majority of the Beatitudes, they're a future blessing. The first Beatitude, the last Beatitude, they're present. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. But those middle six beatitudes are future blessings that he talks about. And he says here, for they shall be satisfied. Right now, if you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Him as your Savior, you have been declared to be righteous before the holy throne of God, before the judge of the universe. You've been declared to be righteous because of who you are in Christ. Even though you still sin. This is amazing. You're not innocent of the charges, but you've been declared to be righteous. And you've been declared to be righteous because Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, his willingness to submit to the will of his Father above all else, has been imputed. It has been attributed to you. Jesus did all the work. And you and I get the credit. This doesn't sound right, does it? This is not fair. And yet this is the way that the Lord works, in His mercy and in His wisdom. And so as believers, we hunger for Jesus. We hunger and thirst for Him. When you are physically hungry, you search until you find food. You go to the pantry, you rummage around. You go to the fridge, you dig around in there, you find something to eat when you are hungry. When you are spiritually hungry, you search for food as well. But your spiritual food is Jesus Christ. Your spiritual food is the Word. You feed upon Jesus spiritually by gathering together in His name here on Sunday mornings. Hearing His Word preached. You feed upon Him in prayer. You feed upon Him by partaking of the sacraments. You feed upon Him in your private devotional times. This is how you feed, this is how you nourish yourselves spiritually and it is just as vital, if not more vital to you, than physical nourishment. And if you're not searching for spiritual food, if you're comfortable with your failure to seek the Lord, to seek Him in prayer, to seek Him in the Word, If you're you're comfortable with uh, your willingness to absent yourself from the church and from her gatherings, then you need to ask yourself why. What is going on in your heart? This is an important question. Because you will only be fully satisfied when you finally see Him face to face. And the Lord has promised that He will bring those in He will bring those in who He has called by name. And those whom He has called by name, He will call to faithful and humble obedience to all that He has commanded. Now you hunger and thirst. Now you seek spiritual food. But then, when you stand before the Lord, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. Well, Let's look now at verse 7. The merciful. Here Jesus gives the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful... For they shall receive mercy. We who hunger and thirst will be satisfied because God has shown mercy to us. And we will in turn show mercy to others. Now one aspect of of mercy is that God is withholding the judgment that we deserve. Because God is holy and we have sinned against Him by breaking His commands, we deserve punishment. But for all who believe in Christ, God withholds punishment. We do not get what we deserve. This is mercy. Jesus is saying that as citizens of his kingdom, we will show mercy to other people. To receive God's mercy and then to turn and be unmerciful to others is hypocritical, it is ungracious, it is unchristlike. And this is illustrated in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew. Chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. In this parable, Jesus tells a story about a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. So he calls his servants before him. And he asks them to repay their debts to him. And one servant was called before him who owed the king many lifetimes worth of wages. It would have been impossible for him to pay them back. And the servant knew this. And because the servant fell on his face before this king and begged for forgiveness and told him he would repay them if the man would just give him more time, if he would just be, be patient with him, the king had mercy on him. And the scripture says that he forgave this man his debts. But what happened after this man was forgiven his debts? He went out from the king and he started looking for people who owed him money. And he found a fellow servant who owed him about uh, less than a year's worth of wages. And what does he do? (laughs) He takes the man aside. He begins to choke him. And he says, you won't repay me. And the man can't. He can't afford this. And so the original servant, the one who's been forgiven this huge debt, he has this man thrown into debtor's prison until he can repay him. Well, when the king heard of this, when he heard of what this servant had done, he summoned him back before him, and he said to him, "You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on this on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? We are poor in spirit because God has shown us that we are spiritually bankrupt before Him. We have nothing." to give Him. We have nothing to hand to Him in order to earn His favor or forgiveness or salvation. And we have been made aware of the ugliness of our sins. The Holy Spirit by grace illuminates to us the darkness of our hearts. We know, as far as humans are able, and we know increasingly throughout our lives as we progress, we know just how much we've been forgiven. And sometimes we forget Sometimes we ignore it like this man, this this evil servant. But if we're truly in Christ, the Lord will correct us. And sometimes we forget, and when we do, those outside the church look at us and they call us self-righteous and arrogant. It is important that we constantly remember how great our sin is. So that we can remember how great our Savior is. And when we remember the great mercy we have been shown, we will show mercy to others. We will show them kindness and forgiveness. We will show them compassion and love. Let's turn now and look at the sixth beatitude, the pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As we will see in the coming weeks, one of Jesus' greatest concerns in the Sermon on the Mount is to speak against the mere mere outward conformity to the law. You see this again and again. This is what He accuses the scribes and the Pharisees of doing. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, which is not a part of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pronounces seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. These woes, these are condemnations upon them. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. (coughs) Jesus condemns the person who puts on a show of religion, whose outward appearances are not true expressions of what is in his heart. He condemns this. This is mere external conformity to the law. This is nothing more than a show. We are all guilty of this. Children, be honest with yourselves here. You know that there are times when your parents tell you to do something. And you do it, but you do it grudgingly. You do it angrily. You're not happy about it, but you do it. Well, that's external conformity to what your parents have commanded you to do. Well, grown-ups... Aren't we guilty of the same thing? Those of you who work, aren't you guilty? We, we do this. We're told by our superiors, we're told by our boss to do something. We don't want to do it, but we do it grudgingly. We do it unhappily. We don't want to lose our jobs. And so we do it. Our hearts aren't in it. But we do it. More seriously than this, though, all of us who are members of this church, or some other church, have made a public profession of faith in Christ. But many of us spend a great deal of time and effort trying to hide our sins from other people. We try to look as if there's nothing wrong with us. We're perfectly righteous. We have no sin in our hearts. And we're tempted to look down on others who do. And in doing so, we put on a pretense of righteousness rather than just acknowledging that we're sinners who have been forgiven. Now when Jesus speaks of the pure in heart, he is talking about the person who isn't putting on a religious show. He's talking about the person whose exterior exactly matches what's in his heart. How disappointing would it be for you as a spouse to discover that your wedding band, which you thought was solid gold, is nothing more than a gold-plated piece of lead? How disappointing would it be if you were to cut into it and realize that this, this shiny golden exterior is nothing more than a facade when we fail to conform inwardly as well as outwardly this is what we're doing we're putting on a veneer we're trying to show that we're more righteous in our actions than we truly are if you have a gold wedding band you want it to be gold through and through you want it to be absolutely pure and Jesus' expectations for the citizens of His kingdom are exactly the same. Jesus wants your hearts. He doesn't just want your outward actions. Now if you spend any time checking the news on the internet, uh, you will inevitably come across articles that, de- that detail the moral failure of some Christian leader or other. Somebody who's fallen into sin, temptation, it becomes exposed. It's all too common. It happens all the time. You see it on the news that I'm focusing it on the internet for a specific reason because in a, inevitably in the comments section on these articles you will see people again and again declaring that Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. That Christianity is simply a lie. That, that, that Just look at these leaders. Christianity is dying a slow death. It's coming apart. It was all fake to begin with. Now to be sure, there are plenty of hypocrites in the the church. And in a sense, I suppose that we're all hypocrites, in a sense. Because we're never fully able to be consistent in our walk with Christ. But we're not truly hypocrites if we're willing to admit that we're sinners who have been saved not because of what we have done. Not because of any good in us. But solely for the righteousness of Christ which has been imputed to us. If we admit this and we confess our sins to the Lord, if we acknowledge our sins before Him, as you've just done this morning, earlier in the worship service, you're not guilty of hypocrisy. You're simply guilty of being a human being who has been saved by God's grace. Accusations of hypocrisy usually follow when those who act like they've never done anything wrong fall flat on their faces in sin. Now, if you're serious about not being... A hypocrite. You've got two options as I see it. You can vow to never do uh, anything in your, uh, if your heart is not in it. So say you come this morning, and your heart is simply not in worshiping the Lord. You could say, I, I can't do it, I can't worship the Lord this morning until I prepare my hearts and my mind to worship the Lord. That's one of the reasons we give you that, that little bit of time, the prelude period, to get yourselves ready, because we know that you need time to get yourselves ready to prepare. But if you're always waiting until your heart is 100% in it, you may never worship God. You may end up spending the rest of your life waiting to be ready rather than uh, simply worshiping. Now there's something to this. We do want you to make yourselves as ready as you're able. But the other option is to seek the Lord to change you. To seek Him. To find Him. To hunger and to thirst for Him. And to ask Him to transform you. To conform you into the image and the likeness of Christ. Pray that He will transform you from the inside out so that what is on the inside of you comes forth and it manifests itself. And people see it. And they know that what you're doing is not simply going through the motions. They know that you're not a fake. If you're doing this, you're begging that God will work within you so that you will delight in being obedient to Him and doing all that He has commanded you to do. You are hungering. You are thirsting for His righteousness. And by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has promised that He will conform you, making you into the image, the likeness of Christ. He will return you. He will make you into a better state than Adam. He will make you incapable of sinning in glory. You cannot return to that former state. You are being sanctified. You're being made more and more holy as you walk with Jesus through this life. You are being purified. You are being refined. And the sin in your hearts is being eradicated. But as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is simply calling you to be consistent with your citizenship. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. By Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection, He has already been all of these things for you in your place as your substitute. He's done all this for you. He has provided you with citizenship. He has given you salvation. And now He is calling you to live up to your name. He is calling you to be a citizen through loving obedience to everything that He has commanded of you. And by His grace... And by your Spirit, by His Spirit living in your heart, you can do this. Let us pray. Our gracious God, thank You once again for Your Word. Thank You, O Lord, that You have declared us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart. Thank You for this declaration. We pray now, O Lord, that You would make us these things. We pray, O Lord, that You would call us to greater and greater holiness. And that by Your Spirit, we would be conformed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.